Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. So tonight we want to talk about prisons. About 2.3 million people are in prison in the United States. You know, when it peaked, our prison population was about one out of 100 people were in prison. And it definitely is disproportionately black and Hispanic in terms of the number that are in prison. But we look at it and we still have high crime rates. So what we want to talk about tonight is, you know, how should you deal with cr- criminals? Is there a better way than the prison system? And I think before we start, before we answer that question in detail, and this, in some ways, this is the answer to all of our podcasts, because really what we're trying to say is... So script- you watched one, you watched them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Watch this one, though. Uh, but is that scripture sufficient? And there's this part of it where I think it's really easy. You can have things like prisons. You can have things, you can have things that become so fundamental a part of society that they make perfect sense. And they're not found in scriptural teaching. They're not found in God's word. They're not found in what God defines as justice. And so I think that's just really important that you don't get to build society however you want and say it pleases God. And just because it it meets some of your needs or accomplishes some of your goals, it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. And so I do think, I mean, like we do most of the time, the first thing to do is to it's to go to God's Word and say, what does God's Word say about justice? What does God's Word say? And, and you know, when we look at what are we trying to accomplish with prisons, and does this match up with what the Bible says should be done? And like you were saying, I mean, this is something that has become pretty entrenched in society over, you know, far beyond anyone's lifetime who's alive. There's been prisons. There's been prisons for our grandparents and, and on and on back. There, there's been prisons. And it's something that I think we don't even realize – you know, how much of a failure the prison system is in the United States, uh, where, you know, a few years ago, and it may still be true, you know, we had a higher percentage of Americans in prison than they had in the gulags in Soviet Russia. And we think of ourselves as, you know, ver- a very a civilized society. and a relatively low crime nation versus the Soviet Union, which was a totalitarian dictatorship. And while I, I don't disagree with that with the state, with the characterization of those countries, it doesn't mean that all parts of our society are working. I was reading some stuff online from these, uh, uh, like, Russian apologists, like, saying the Soviet Union wasn't all that bad. Like, oh, look, America, you know, they have more prisoners than we did. Well, <laughs> we can both be bad. The Soviet <laughs> Union was bad, and our prisons are better than the Soviet Union's. Right. But the fact that we have more people in prison than the Soviet Union did should make us look and say, wait a second. And you mean per capita, right? Per capita, Per capita, which is is really significant. Yeah, and the the U.S. has, I think, about a quarter of the prisoners on Earth Mm -hmm. are in the United States. And so we have, even though China has a billion more people than we do, we have more prisoners than China does. Well, this may be because China just kills them. (laughs) And that's what I was going to say about the USSR in particular. I mean, they killed 30 to 70 million people in those gulags. So part of it is that the average stay there wasn't nearly as long as the average stay in the United States. Because, you know, if you kill the person off in two or three years because you're working them to death effectively, you know, it really shifts things. So those numbers, I mean, I agree with you, those, those, you know, it's really hard to compare the numbers, but what we go back to is, look at the United States. We shouldn't be going, look how wonderful we are. Right. And it's a thing where it's not like, well, yeah, all the countries are pretty close, but, you know, because of the – it's hard to compare, so the U.S. is okay. But, you know, the U.S. is, like, substantially more than a lot of countries with, that have a lot more problems than we do. And so we should, we should take a look. Is, are, is what we're doing working? And is what other countries doing working either? Right, because we're, what, about a 20th of the world's population, and so to have a quarter of the, the people in prison, 
that's really disproportionate compared to the rest of the world. And I think, you know, one of the goals of the, the prison system was supposed to be to rehabilitate people and stop them from committing crime. But you have half of people coming out of prison end up back in prison. So that seems like a pretty bad failure when this deterrent is not working. I think one of the things is when you do go to God's word and you look at what is the purpose of the law and what does God say the purpose of the law is. I mean, aside from everything, the point of everything is to glorify God. The purpose of the law is to constrain sin. I mean, the Bible says the law was added because of transgressions. And so the purpose of the law is to constrain and limit sin. And like Joshua was saying, when you have people who go into prison come out of prison being more likely to commit crimes. And when you look at even just, you look at a fundamental verse in Scripture that says a person who, you know, a companion of fools will be destroyed. You take a person, you put them in prison, and you have them spend one, three, five, ten, fifteen years with what you would definitely define as fools, that is not a way to bring somebody back out and say, now you're ready to come back into society. I mean, so, I mean, there are just really fundamental things aside from, I think we'll talk about a lot of different reasons, but just there are fundamental problems with the idea that, that locking a man up with other criminals is a good way to stop him from committing crime when he returns into society, if that's your point, if that's the point of locking him up. And I do think that you know, before we go into some of those issues, we should step back and say, you know, you know, there is what the law does, which is to constrain sin, but there's also what the civil magistrate's supposed to do in punishing sin, right? Because if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, it's its primary target, if you will. I mean, obviously it applies to everybody, but it is to the civil magistrate, how they're supposed to rule. And so they're supposed to write it out and all these other things. But you know, it says 10 times through the book of Deuteronomy, and, you know, one example would be in Deuteronomy 17.7, the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And so when you think of what the civil magistrate's supposed to be doing, and frequently they would do this by putting the person to death, but the goal of the civil magistrate is to put the evil out of the society. So we should be more like USSR. <laughs> <laughs> no, only if it's real crimes, not right. the crime of, of, of not liking Lenin that, or Stalin. That's not a good reason to put somebody right. to death, which is what they were making a capital crime. But, you know, the, the government, when they say what their purpose is for prisons, they've lost that idea right. that it's really to put the evil out from among you. Right, because uh, you know that we can't just say, "Well, prisons are bad." You need to have an, another solution, and that is going to come in multiple forms. Um, but but one of those would be, yeah, putting putting people who commit the the crimes that God says are worthy of death to death. Right, keeping them in prison for fifty or sixty years is a good way to increase the percentage of people that you have in prison compared to other countries. Right, theft is a good example. For theft, you restitution was the primary. I mean, restitution was almost always the form of payment that was done in Scripture and the way that that crime was actually handled. And so, I mean, but in the U.S., we would lock somebody up for committing, a, for, for stealing. And you could, you know, you could be in jail for, for a very long period of time, depending on what you've stolen, if you've stolen enough. And in, in what happens then is that instead of the person who was stolen from gets made whole, they continue to suffer the loss. And so you haven't, there's no restoration in the system to the victims. And, and, you know, there's waves that go through that have gone through in my lifetime of, oh, we need to reform the prisons to give the victims more say in what happens and to find restitution for the, and there's all these things. But fundamentally, it's something that's been lost from our system, the idea that 
that if you sinned against someone, it's to them that you owe restitution rather than to the state. Right. Yeah. I mean, we have this term that we use even for paying your debt to society. And we think that when somebody is a criminal, that what they've, what they've violated, the crime that they've committed is a violation of the social contract, whatever that is. But that there's, they've acted against civil order. And because they've acted against civil order, it's the state or the public or society or whatever. Some it, nebulous large, concept. Yeah, they've, they've acted against a concept is a really good way of saying it. Right. And so they owe something to a concept as opposed to saying, no, you wronged a particular person or persons, right. and you need to pay restitution. You need to be made right with that person or persons. Right. And these things kind of go through waves, right? Because we don't call them penitentiaries anymore, but that's what the word is. It's penitence. It's for just right. like the Roman Catholic. You're made, Instead of making penitence to God, you're doing it to the state because the state is the one that you sinned against. The state is the one that you damaged. So even though you stole from a third party, all of a sudden you're paying your debt to the state. Well, that, that's not the biblical way, and that doesn't, you know, <laughs> that just means somebody really suffers. I mean, hey, here in North Carolina, just looking at the title of the of the department that administers the prisons is really interesting. I mean, just a few years ago, it was the Department of Corrections. Well, when with that word corrections, you have all of the things that we've been talking about. Well, you're trying to correct somebody's unpalatable behavior, or you're trying to rehabilitate right. them. Okay, fine, I mean, we can talk about reasons why it doesn't work, but... We see what you're getting at. Well, they just changed the name a few years ago. It's no longer the Department of Corrections. It's now the Department of Public Safety, which tells you this, you know, and it's the same department that covers emergency preparedness and disaster relief is the department that now runs our prison system, and it's the Department of Public Safety, and, and it tells you what their real goal is. Their goal is it's really not about the well-being of the prisoners, it's about the well-being of, of everybody else and these undesirables we have to lock up over there. Some percentage of everybody else. <laughs> Some percentage, yeah. <laughs> right. and, and yeah. And in there you have a tacit admission that this program to reform the prisoners that's been going on for decades has kind of failed. It didn't work. We weren't really doing a great job of correcting them, so let's just change the euphemism. And now we're, really, we're not concerned about them. We're really concerned about everybody else. And, you know, biblically, there's some legitimacy to that idea. But usually if they're that high of a risk, the biblical penalty is death. And the biblical penalty is not to put them into a prison. Right. And there is this part of it where, I mean, the truth is, is when you lock a man up, you treat him like an animal. I mean, and there is a part of it where, I mean, one of the, the reason why murder, why God says murder is a sin, isn't because we find it reprehensible. I mean, when I, when I hear about someone murdering someone, what bothers me about it is when I look at the murder victim, I see myself. You know what I mean? What, what offends me personally about murder is that could be me. So I want everything done to deal with that murderer because I don't want to be murdered. But what God says, he tells Noah, is it's because man's made in the image of God. And the issue with when we lose sight of that is, is we forget that man is made in the image of God, which means you can't treat man like an animal. You can't take a man and just lock him up in a box and treat him like an animal because you don't have the right to do that. And and that starts to be and that starts to be a really fundamental point. And so when like Jonathan said, if your idea is safety, if all you think about is your own safety, well you can do anything to other people. I mean you can do all sorts of I mean and there's a point where I mean who can you not say I mean, there's a point where the safest thing is you know, there's the idea of the point where the safest thing is if nobody does anything ever. 
Right. Because, you, you know, we mentioned, uh, you mentioned the Soviet Union before, and if you're saying that you're punishing people to keep the public safe, that's what they were doing. That's right. what they said they were doing. We have to throw these people who wrote letters complaining about the government in prison because we need to keep the country safe. They're attacking society. Right. It's a crime against society. So, so like, I, I mean, the question of what do we do with criminals, we throw them in prison, it comes back to who defines justice and who defines the punishment when someone violates justice? And if and Christians should say that God defines justice. And the Bible has spent a lot of time talking about crimes and putting forth God's standard of how to deal with them. And I was looking uh, this morning about uh, all the places that prisons are referenced in the Bible, and it's referenced quite a few times. However, it is not referenced in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in the in the laws of God. And right. so there's the all these examples of people being thrown into prison. There's Joseph being thrown in prison. You know, Jeremiah's in prison. John the right. Baptist is in prison. All these people are in prison. But God never says throw anyone in prison in, 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 uh, in his law. And that, that should be something that we should take note of. And the, the examples in the Bible, although you don't know about like the baker and the, the butler and, and the story with Joseph, but most of the people are put in prison unjustly. It's not that they're put in prison because they should be punished. Now, granted, the story is about Joseph, and it's about Paul, and it's about Jeremiah. But we should just recognize that, that prisons are a way to be unjust. And the government likes that because it is a way to punish their enemies. Right. I mean, you can look at what's happening now where people are very upset about the, the, the riot that happened on January 6th. So they're throwing people in, into jails and keeping them in solitary confinement for crimes that they almost certainly wouldn't serve jail time for. Right. And so prisons are a good way for a, for a government to exercise authoritarian power against people, where if you had to get the people to go out and stone them and put them to death— People aren't going to agree to that. It's not going to happen. But if you, right. but you can do the prison system all on your own pretty easily, and not get people that upset. You can just make the people disappear, like in the French Revolution, right? They just put them in the Bastille, and you never heard from them again for 20, 30, 40 years. And so it's a it's a means for governments to abuse their authority. And it's I mean, like you said, making people go away is one of the appeals of prison. Go away in a sanitized. A way where they get to live a happy life in their own little, in their own little. <laughs> know, just like when your dog happy, dies but... and your parent sends it <laughs> off to a farm. <laughs> I mean, but and there's this part of it where I mean, it is anytime something is moved out of sight, anytime something is moved away from where it's actually, you know, it's looked at, it's scrutinized. And, and one of the problems is when we deal with things like you deal with things like theft, you deal with things where you know where someone steals. It's complicated. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if now you have to deal with getting this person to work and pay this other person back, that's hard. Locking him up in a box and feeding him for 10 years, that's a lot easier because all you have to do to, is just, he just has to survive for 10 years and, and now and you can mark done on the form and you've accomplished your goal. And so, I mean, there is this part of it where we need to understand that, there are these, that one of the reasons why prisons exist is because they satisfy something in us. We don't have to deal with the complexity of things. We don't have to deal with just the real difficulty of sin. Yeah, I have this book sitting here called 
in defense of flogging by Peter Moskus. And it's it's a kind of an interesting book. I wouldn't necessarily recommend people read it. I think, you know, for Christians, what we're saying here is probably going to cover most of the useful stuff in this book. But because he, he's not a Christian, he's writing from a secular perspective. But one, one of the things he talks about is exactly what, what you're saying, is that when you put someone in prison, they go they go away versus a flogging. You know, he is kind of somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but he's saying, what if we ins- gave people the choice to be flogged? You know, instead of spending five years in prison, what if you get 40 lashes? And that's going to be a brutal thing. It's going to be a thing that everyone around may see or see the results of this uh, brutal punishment on this person. But yet, putting them in prison in a room, concrete cell, for, ten year- or for five years, that's pretty brutal too. And, you know, there's, there's many benefits to, to God's ways. And I think, you know, corporal punishment is, is one of God's ways. And you see even now people, people recognizing, wait a second, what we're doing isn't working. And maybe some of these old things that were the society had more elements that were based on God's law, maybe, maybe those would actually work better. I mean, it's when you start talking about something like flogging or other kinds of, I mean, medieval torture, it... One of the things that we do is that we think that putting a man in a box or a woman, we think that that's humane. Right. That's, and that's our attitude. And, and if you're a Christian and, and what we're saying is, is jarring you a little bit, we, we hope it is. I mean, if you come away from this podcast with nothing else than, hey, you know, locking a man in a cage for theft for 10 years or 15 years or whatever— that may not be the best way to deal with that. That may not be the best way to deal with it for society, may not be the best way to deal with it for the man himself, that may not be the best way to deal with that in God's eyes. You know, if you could just come away and saying, I don't know about that, you know, hey, I, I could be happy. If that's all you get out of this is that locking a man in a cage is not the right solution for a whole bunch of things, then, yeah, we'll make something. I think there's there's a concept that I've heard people talk about, which is that, oh, well, prisons are bad because prisons are just, you know, it's kind of like a vacation for the criminal. I think it might be worth kind of dispelling that because I think that's generally a, a myth, at least for, you know, there's probably a few people who get, you know, cushy, relatively prison sentences and some people or prison uh, conditions. And, you know, there's probably some people who do prefer living in prison to the outside world. But for most people, it's not it's not some fancy swanky hotel room that you're staying in. I mean, it's, it's, you're living in concrete rooms, often no air conditioning, you know, not great company. The most likely case you're to get of somebody who actually looks at prison as like this cushy thing is someone who's been in prison for 20 years and then they get put, they were in a hard, they were in like a maximum security prison and then they get put in a minimum security prison. And there's someone who knows, they know the ropes, they know how to get what they want. And all of a sudden their life has been made a lot easier that's the most likely you're actually to see of somebody who just looks at prison and goes, "This is, this was, this was nice," because they're accustomed to prison. Yeah, but but for most people, I mean, you're living with dangerous people. There's you know right, gangs think... and all kinds. I mean, it's a pretty. And aside from the fact that just losing your liberty is a huge thing, even if you are locked in the nicest, you know, the nicest house in the world, you're going to grow dissatisfied because yeah. you know, and where you're. Friends and family may have to drive hours to come and see you for a very right. limited time. You know, that is not, that's not a good life for well, most people. And there's the other case that you hear about, and they, I mean, they, they're interesting enough that they make the news about the person who's spent a life in prison 
and then they got out and they committed a crime just so they could go back to prison. You hear about these in the news, and that's terribly sad. I mean, that's heartbreaking that, that you've got somebody who, because of their life in prison, because of the way they've been conditioned, they don't feel like they are empowered enough to live as a free human being in society. And so it's just easier to get locked up again. Right. It's that, and let's make sure we understand what that situation is. The reality is they're just afraid of the society, right? I mean, they're just right. afraid to be out. They're afraid of how they'll feed themselves. They're afraid of who's going to tell them what to do. Right. How will they know? They're very much like a trained animal. And that's not what the what humans are supposed to do to other humans. And that's basically the people that are going, I just want to get back in. They like being a pet that gets his meals when he's handed to him at the certain time of the day. And he gets to go on a walk when he's supposed to go on a walk. And I mean, it very much, they're like a trained animal. And that's a horrible thing that we're doing this to human beings. Right. And I think even, you know, there's a, I don't have the percentage offhand, but a, quite a large percentage of the prisoners in America are in solitary confinement, whether because they're too dangerous to put around other people or whether other people are going to, you know, attack them. It's, it's a lot like that. Many, many thousands of people are in solitary confinement. And I mean, that is its own special, you know, torture where people will literally go insane just being by themselves all the time with no one to talk to. It's not 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 humane. And I do think that it's worth, you know, we've mentioned a few, but almost making a list of, you know, what happens is every minute you're told what to do, which is very difficult for a person who's made in God's image, right? I mean, this is unnatural for us to have. I mean, even children have more freedom than prisoners do typically. I mean, they're right. pretty much their day is ordered and you follow the order or you get in big trouble. And another thing is, yeah, very violent people you're surrounded with. Violent physically, violent sexually, right? I mean, it's a dangerous place to be. And you always have to watch out of who's going to stab you in the back. When we think about these things, it's really easy to look at that abstract case of the man who's been in prison for 30 years and wants to go back instead of saying, you know, in addition, they only can see relatives when the prison says, we'll let you see relatives. And if there's a, a pandemic that goes around, you might go a year plus, who knows how long, without seeing any, any visitors. Right. And, and, and a lot of it keeps going back to control, control, control. The, prison, the point of the prison system is to put controls on somebody and – if all you're doing is controlling somebody, you're not, you know, the Department of Corrections. That's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to control them for the period of time that you've been given to control them. And to, and the highest goal in prisons, having visited people in prison many times, the highest goal in prison is for the guards not to have any problems. You just, you know, they don't care if the prisoners have problems among themselves. They want to go home at night. You can't blame them for that. But so it's all about their control. It's all about their risk mitigation. And so, you know, somebody might get sick. Well, we'll just shut down visitation for 15 months. What's the big deal? Because they are dealing with people on a regular basis that are very dangerous people. And so they stop treating them like people. And, and you know, it's worth mentioning, too, I think, that you have these, you know, 2 million people who are in prison. And it's affecting a lot more than those 2 million people. You know, there's a certain percentage of those people who are, you know, should be put to death. But for a lot of the others, I mean, they're being taken out of the relationships that God put them in. And that even though as flawed they might be, there are many people who, you know, their, their children are deprived of seeing them. Their wives are deprived of seeing them. The ones that, you know, became Christians or, 
you know, they're deprived of the company of Christians, they're deprived of churches by and large. And so it's affecting not only the people that are in prison, but it's affecting their families and a lot of other people too. I mean, if you're, I mean, just let's just be really blunt and straightforward. America's prisons are where America keeps its slaves. I mean, sla- I mean, prisoners are slaves, and they they are treated. I mean, and so I mean, and what I mean by that is this: if you think about a slave, there's different components of being a slave. One of them is that you can't control your own time. You don't have you don't own the product of your own labor. You can, you know you, you you can't choose. Like you can't choose when you do what you're going to do. You can't choose what you're going to do, and the things, and you don't have the right to own things or to have the things that you own. And someone else is responsible for feeding, for feeding you shelter. Right. I mean, these yeah Medical components. Care and, and so, I mean, and, and if you don't believe that, go look at the Thirteenth Amendment, which is the amendment that bans slavery in the United States, and you will see that there is an exception that you know if it's for punishment for a crime. You can still be enslaved. And right. while they don't call them slaves, and while, you know, a lot of places you don't have to work necessarily, doesn't mean that it's not slavery. But originally, right, I mean, we look back, and it's kind of the same thing. We look back and go, they used to have the chain gangs, and we've gotten rid of that. Well, the chain gangs, part of that was they got, the prison system got paid, and victims would get some money back because they actually had to work. So you are taking the biblical system and twisting it some, but at least there was still the idea of treating them like people where you're saying they can actually do productive things. And yes, you know, productivity of taking a sledgehammer and taking a boulder and making it into gravel so that you have gravel for your streets, you know, not the highest, you know, right. <laughs> but still at the same time, it was very effective. And it, it, you know, you can see the degradation of our prison system over time. And it's definitely getting worse because some of these ideas that were there before where there should be restitution, that there should be labor, that you treat them more like people than you do now. Now you just treat them like a dog that you keep in their pen. I mean, we're degrading, and the church needs to speak out and say, this is not the right direction. This is not what we should be doing. And to add to your list of the, the, (laughs) the problems with prison is the idea that you don't have to work. You know, God made people to work. And in prison, generally... I don't know the details of every prison regulation in the country, surprisingly, but, <laughs> but, but by and large, I don't believe you are required to work. I mean, there's incentives. They'll take time off your sentence in certain cases, but you don't have to work. If you do work, it's a government-run program, you know, where they have very little incentive to make you be productive. So even when you are working, I don't believe, by and large, you're in a place where you are even allowed to be very productive. And, and so you have these people, and while they might not realize what a curse it is, the fact that they are not being, they are not able, allowed to do what God intended them to do is, is a major, major detriment for them. And if your reaction is, oh, well, those people, they were just bums, they are just leeches off society anyway, I mean, really, shame on you, because you're not, tre- you, you're not willing to look at that person and think of them as a person who really could be productive. Rather, you would just like to say, hey, look, this person's just a ne'er-do-well. They just, they didn't have any help. We're just going to lock them up. And say they were that ne'er-do-well. Say that they were a bum and they didn't do much work. All of a sudden, you know, I know people that have quote-unquote jobs in prison. And they go do their work for an hour to a day. And that's called a full-time job. So what are you teaching? You're teaching these people that what everybody in society goes well, you're a bum. You're only working two hours a day. All of a sudden, you're teaching them that that is what a full-time job is supposed to look like. Right. I mean, you're preparing them to come back. You're not preparing them to go into society. 
in society, people work most of their time, most of their waking time, or close to most of it. They're doing work, and yet in, in prison, they go, oh, you worked for an hour. You've had a full-time job. When the guy who's talking about flogging, this guy who's not a Christian, who's just going, how do we solve our problem? I mean, when I look at my children, I spank my children. I spank my children because it is useful to them to help them to understand how to control their sin. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, the church has just, the church has been silent and the world is grasping at straws. And what they can sell to people is, we're going to make them go away. We can, we can get them out of your sight and you won't have to deal with them. But this is not, it's not sustainable and it causes huge problems. And I mean, it's, it's going to continue to cause problems. And our society starts to become just like Pharaoh's society, right? I mean, Pharaoh threw people in prison all the time, right? I mean, it becomes that society. And we need to be—the church needs to be speaking and saying, that's not. That's not the ideal. That's the opposite of the ideal. The church, in a lot of ways, has forgotten the second half of the Great Commission to teach them all things that he has commanded. I mean, Christ has commanded these things. He has told us what justice looks like. And we should be saying, how should that look now in our culture at this time? And so when we think about what does God say you're supposed to do with criminals, I mean, one, one part of it is what you were just mentioning. Proverbs 10, verse 13 says, Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. And, you know, I think in uh, certain Christian circles, you know, that, that's accepted for children, but the Bible doesn't limit it to children. You know, the rod is for him who's devoid of understanding. So there are certain categories of crimes that should be punished not with sitting in prison, but with the rod. And what's inherent in this is the idea that I think is different than our prison system. What's inherent in the idea is because the person's made in the God's image, they can learn. They can be taught things, and they can go, I don't want to do that again. Our prison system plays around with that idea, right? I mean, that's why we have reformatories, what they were called for a while, because they were going to reform people. They would teach them, or the Department of Correction, they would teach them. But the way they're treating them, they're treating them like there's only so much that a dog can learn. And if you're treating them like an animal, if you're treating them like a dog, there's only a certain expectation of what they'll learn. And so, yeah, they... And I'm not saying that there aren't prisoners who, who rise above the system, but the system is set up not to really teach anybody anything, and they walk out 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, and they don't know any more than they did when they walked in. But God's ways of using the rod, people go, wait a second, I'm not going to do that again, and they go figure it out. And there's a, God is treating man as if he is an intelligent being, and our prison system treats them as if they're not. I mean, our prison system teaches them, treats them as if they are just another animal. Because, I mean, really, we've bought into an evolutionary worldview, and we're very materialistic in the way we think. And we think, well, the way that you deal with higher animals is as same, animals. Right, the same way you do it with lower yeah. animals. And, and, I mean, I want to go back to something that Charles was saying when you were talking about the way that the church just doesn't teach about sin. And I think you can come at it from the back end of that or the consequence of that is... The church just doesn't want to deal with sin. Right. And because the church, I mean, forget teaching about sin and defining sin and talking about sin, when the church is actually confronted with sins that it just can't get away from, the church is not interested in doing discipline. And if you have a, a society where the churches in it are not churches that are willing to call out sin 
and to judge sin according to what the Scripture says. And the Scripture is really plain on that. It gives you procedures, it gives you guidelines, it gives you judgments that the Church can enact. Right. If the Church isn't willing to actually govern itself, why should we think that the surrounding society is going to do a great job of their own responsibility for governing themselves? Or treat, yeah, and specifically in their, their governance, why would we expect them to treat humans as if they have value? Because in a real sense, the church, when it won't do discipline inside its own ranks, it's not treating the members like they have value, and it's teaching the society to do the same thing. So when the church doesn't care enough about the members to actually do discipline, they shouldn't be surprised that the church treats the people like animals. And I think I even mentioned before about how that the Bible says that a companion of fools will be destroyed. Is that when you put people in prison, they learn from each other. And, and one, of the really, one of the worst issues is you could have someone who's put in prison for doing something really small. And he's put in there for long enough, and while he's in there, while he's being treated horribly, while he's, you know, what he does is he learns how to be a better criminal or a, a, a bigger type of criminal when he comes out. You know, when he goes in, all he knows is maybe, I mean, this is one of the things that people forget. Like you're saying, people are learning creatures. People can learn. And most things that people actually know how to do, they learn from someone else. They see someone else do it. They hear someone else tell them how to do it, and they go, oh, this, you know what I mean? And so you have people who go into prison, and what they do is they come out as a better criminal. You create an environment that's really conducive to this is how to be a really, really good criminal. And if you look at the fruit of some of the groups that that flourish in prisons or come out of prisons, I mean, apart from just gangs and things, you have, you know, radical Islam converts, you know, black power, you know, white racist groups. I mean, th- this is what flourishes in prison because you this is this, these are the what they're bonding over in, in many cases. So when the state doesn't teach them, they still get taught because they still are. They're, they're made in God's image. They're made right. to change, right? Humans are made to change. We're not supposed to have the same intelligence when we're 80 as we do when we're 20. We're supposed to grow in our knowledge, grow in our understanding, grow in our application. This is just natural for mankind. Right. And so when the prison puts it where we're just going to lock you up for 30 years and you're going to stay the same, it's not what happens. And when you, when you look at uh, is the prison educating people, I mean, this might be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but prisons put a lot of obstacles in in the in the way of people educating themselves voluntarily. Um, you know, not I mean, some of this is understandable because they need to be trying to stop contraband and weapons and drugs and all kinds of stuff from coming in. But you know, they make it hard to get materials in. You you make it hard for you to take college classes, and and it's just stuff that is in many cases natural, but also like they're they're putting obstacles in the way of education rather than than furthering in many and cases. it's weird because they kind of do both, right? Because they'll pay for you to go to college classes, but at the same time, they won't give you a typewriter or a, a computer to write papers on. You have to write them by hand in pencil. And you have like, you have the whole catalog of classes, but you, there's only like two options per semester and you can take one class. You know, there's lots of different things, but like even where you can take classes, like some of these prisons, like there's no way you're going to get a degree in 10 years. And it's, it's the same where they even have training programs where, you know, like masonry, I mean, they just do the same thing over and over again. They don't, like, actually learn very much. And, again, it's not even that it's 
It's that people are in those classes because you get time off for those classes. So even if somebody goes and wants to learn, it's difficult to learn because nobody else wants to learn. They're there just to get a day off of their sentence because, you know, in North Carolina, if you go to a class for a day, a day is reduced off your sentence until you hit your minimum. And so, you know, there's just it's not conducive to actually move people forward because then they don't use those skills either and they're, they develop them in a pseudo way, but they don't actually do what's take to make them productive in that. If you think about, well, what are the things that you want a society to do? Do you want to build a city? Do you want to build a business? Do you want to plant a church somewhere? Do you want to do you, worship God? Yeah. Do you want to worship God? Do you want to start a family? And all of these are the sorts of things that require close collaboration with other people. And the prison system is just not set up where you can have those kind of productive interactions with other people, especially other people who are in a different life situation than you, older than you, that you can learn from, younger than you, that you can teach, or somebody who can mentor you because they have skills that you don't have. I mean, when you're in a prison system, all you can do, in a sense, is you can, you can do self-improvement, maybe, if, if you get the resources, which is difficult, but you can't really collaborate with somebody else to do something that leaves a legacy or anything behind for anyone. And you think about what's happening here is the pr you put somebody in a prison because they had behaviors that were contrary to the goals of society, and you think, well, in order to get them to be back in society, we're just gonna take them out of society where they could learn anything and then expect that putting them back in society is going to happen We're going to bring them out of society, put them with a bunch of other people who also had problems in society, let them spend time together, and then that will fix it. I mean, it is it is the most nonsense. If you described <laughs> it to someone, you couldn't describe. I'm, I'm not, you, you could. I'm sure you could just throw in some other things. But it doesn't make sense at any point along the way. And it's the worst for, uh, you know, juvenile detention with children where they're not even, I mean, at least when you're putting adults in prison, I mean, they have been formed as an adult and I mean, they can change, but they are pretty much set. But now these, you, when you're putting kids in prison, you know, and for good reason, because in the sense that they have done bad things. Right. But when you are putting these out of control kids in prison with a bunch of out of control, a bunch of other out of control kids, with the guards having much less ability to restrain them, I mean, now you're just even more training them to just be, you know, truly not productive members of society and, and truly disruptive people. And in juvenile delinquent situations, there's a greater difference in the maturity of people. So you'll get a 16 or a 17-year-old that's been in a gang for 10 years. And then all of a sudden you'll get somebody that was rebellious to his parents and got put in prison that's 14. But in terms of the world, there's 20 years difference between them. Right. And, all, and who in that society is going to lead? Not the 14-year-old that was more sheltered. It's the 16 or 17-year-old that's been a gang member for 10 years. He's the one that's going to lead, and he's going to train them. So the shift of the people that are you know, on a scale on the more innocent side – they're going to shift more dramatically in a juvenile delinquent situation right. than, than they would in a prison situation. And that's, I mean, that's not even getting into some of the collateral damage of having fathers in prison. Mm -hmm. And so many, so many fathers are in prison. And what that means is that they have children who are effectively fatherless and children who are, whether they get it explicitly or not, they are getting this picture of prisons being a, a normal 
position where, okay, maybe someday I'll do my time too, because that's just the way life is. Right. And, and part of it is even that, you know, they're also hearing from their mothers in lots of cases, not in all the cases, obviously, but in lots of cases, they're also hearing, well, your father really shouldn't be there. It's society's unjust. And they're, they're putting these other these other uh, obstacles in front of their children so that they don't end up the same place that their father did. So you have this, you know, multi-generational recidivism where you have these people going in because their father went in because, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a system that's just growing up. Yeah. Cause every day, every day in front of you is the idea that my father isn't here versus if he gets flogged or he has to pay a large sum of money. I mean, that was something that maybe he thought that was unjust at one point, but it's not before the child every single day growing up. And even if the situation where somebody has to pay a large deal of money that they don't have and they get sold into slavery and their family goes into slavery with them, they're seeing if the man who bought them as a slave would be typical, they're trying to get more production out of them. So the son is going to see his father advance rather than decline, as opposed to somebody who's, who's you know, a young man who's, you know, say 12 or something that's going to see his father, you know, once every three months or something. He's going to mature and his father's just going to stagnate or decline, and he's not going to go – there's advancement here. It's going to be there's decline here. This isn't. This isn't. I should have bigger goals. It should. I should have less goals. This is what it looks like to be a man. Right. I'm going to use the word repentance, but I'm using it in in a in a loose sense. But with the biblical prescriptions for crimes, and and we're talking non-capital crimes, there's the possibility for there to be a public repentance in the sense where the the law defines if you commit such and such crime here's your penalty. Here's, you know, for theft, for example, it depends on the circumstances of the theft and the circumstances of, of the how you were found out. Did you confess? Do you still have the things stolen? Exactly how much you had to pay back. But there was the possibility under the law of God to pay it back. There was a possibility to be accused of a crime and then to be done at the end of your payment for that crime. And it doesn't you know, you don't have a record, in a sense, that gets held over you right. because you committed the crime and you paid back what was owed on that. And it's not like now where, okay, well, you can commit a crime, you can commit a theft, and then you can do some years in prison. But the world's never righted from that. You never had the opportunity to look somebody in the face and say, I did you wrong, but now I've done you right. And you would have in some of these cases where it's a physical thing, you know, I for a nice type situation where, you know, that is made right as much as it can be on earth in a matter of seconds. And now it's over and now you can move on with your life. They say you've paid your debt to society where it's this nebulous idea. So there's this part of it when you meet someone who's been in prison, you, you want to treat them correctly. And so there's this part of it where you acknowledge that they've been, that they have done what the system has required of them. But there's also this part of it where, because it's so nebulous, you're aware of it. I mean, there's a cognitive dissonance. You know what I mean? Is you know that what was asked of them had nothing to do with what they did. You look at somebody and say, okay, well, this person's a thief, and yeah, they paid their debt to society, but have they really paid it back? I mean, right. can I trust this person? Hey, if they were a thief and then were forced to pay something back, you could, you have a different level of trust with that person, right? Because it took work to pay it back, and it's like it's like it's like they match. It's like they, you know, it's a it's a 
You know what I mean? It makes and, sense. And the Bible says this. You know, the thief needs to work so he learns to steal no more. You can trust that person. The thief that gets locked up, I don't have any confidence that he's learning to work so that he can steal no more. Right. And, I mean, another practical aspect of this person coming out and being a felon and people knowing that is, so what happens is they put him in a group, right, in a prison, and they learn what I called antisocial behavior. They learn to be in that society rather than the real society. And then people realize, then all of a sudden they're dumped out, so that won't work. So then they do minimum security prisons where you can go out during the day and work, right? Because that's a good idea. You get them out into society before right. they... The problem is, of course, the prisons immediately go, we can't have these people go everywhere. They're criminals. So we have to approve the places. So when they approve the places, guess what happens? All the prisoners are still together, when they're out in the world, because the places that are approved for work release, right. there's only a few places, because how many people want to go through the hassle? And the ones that are the few places are not going to be the ones that they're not doing computer programming. They're doing you right. know manual stuff. And then, and then once they leave prison, they still have this on their record, and so they go to a white-collar job, and most white-collar jobs are going to go, oh, you've got a felony. We're not really interested. And so, and even, once and again, even a lot of non-white college jobs. Actually. I agree with, and that's what I was going to say. And so, what you end up with is you create another ghetto where you have these people that are ex-cons, and at, once they're out in society, even where they're working, the places where they work tend to be places where their ex-cons are working because that's kind of the way that it because works. Because get, other people don't want to deal with it because nobody says it's been paid back. Because when you get out, a lot of times you don't have connections in the world. Mm -hmm. You've, you know, it's, it's effectively you've been, it's a form of death. You've been separated. Your things have been severed from you. So you don't have any money. You don't have any prospects. So you try to find a place that's like a halfway house. The halfway house, you start off in debt for your rent. And that, you know, and like you're talking, and so now you sort of live in a, a prison that's outside of the, outside of the prison and try to figure out how to get back. I mean, and, it, and it's just so And you very can't blame... You can't really blame other people for doing this because there is enough experience that they've learned how to be worse while they were in prison. So, of course, you want to kind of keep them separate and keep them at arm's length because it is natural because they know how the system works. So they the government can say they've done all these things and they've paid repaid their debt to society, but people know better. And so it creates this, this separate society that once you enter into it, you can't escape. We've talked a lot about what's wrong with it. So what should it look like? We should probably spend some time I talking mean, about that. Here's what it should look like is you should go back. Every, everybody's listening this far. Try this. Go back and read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's, and then come back in 20 hours. <laughs> we'll have it's another not podcast that ready long. for you. I mean, in, in any one of your Bibles, it's only going to be a couple hundred pages. And I know, I know what the Christians of, of the modern era think about the law. I mean, the law, it's so heavy. It's so burdensome. I mean, come on, get real. The, what the Bible comprises as its entire civil code is smaller than any federal or state code by many, many orders of magnitude. Right. Even even hundreds of years ago when it was far smaller, the Bible was still much smaller than civil law. So, so start there and just say, if I wanted to build a society that was modeled on this, would it look like the society that we have now? Would it include prisons? And I mean, if you listen, our answer is no. Not like we have now. 
it, it wouldn't include this. So start there. Find out what God says, and along the way, there's some fun stories in those. It's not all dry law, um, you know. And there's you, wonderful pictures of the gospel. And you get pictures, of the, but but read what God says about how you deal with sin, how you deal with antisocial behavior, how you deal with these people who are problems for society, and some of them. The Bible says, hey, this person needs to be put to death because that's the only thing that, that's the only way restitution can be made. That's the only way order can be restored. Other ones, there's, there are penalties that can be put in front of them and say, this is what you owe, and this is what you need to pay, and here's the structure for paying that back. And start there, and, it, and it's going to be complicated, and it's going to be complex, and we can't cover all of that in an hour podcast. But start there. Read the Bible and say, what does God say when God was creating a, a culture from, from nothing, when he was taking the people out of Egypt and saying, you weren't a people, now you're a people, and this is the way that you're going to live and treat each other when you get to the promised land? He was dealing with people who had been slaves for a long period Prisoners. of time. Prisoners. Yes, who had been. I mean, and it's a really interesting picture. They're coming out. They've been slaves for generations, and he says... I'm going to teach you how to live with each other. I'm going to teach you how to be a free people. And some of the people who are coming out with you were your masters, because this was a mixed multitude. And some of and some of it when you're doing that is be prepared to take a deep breath and go, I'm wrong and God's right, because that's a really fundamental concept. I'm wrong and God's right. So when you know when Joshua said before, you know, an eye for an eye, you know, I could imagine a lot of people listening go, you're supposed to poke out their eye. If they cause somebody else to lose an eye, and that's very shocking to us. But that's but, what God says. But would you rather spend 20 years in prison for aggravated assault or whatever, or would you rather lose an eye? I don't know, I don't know how many people would not choose to lose an eye. So when you look at that, even, even you know, it sounds more merciful to put them in prison, but how many people, if they had that decision, which one would they choose? God knows how to put out evil from a society. He's telling us how to do it. And if you have that guy going around that has the missing eye that people see, instead of putting him off in a cage where nobody sees him, where everybody forgets about him, where his family only thinks about him when it's that time of the month that they go visit him, if instead you see the guy with the missing the eye all the time or missing a hand or missing a foot, all of a sudden you're going to be a lot more careful the way you behave in Part of the reason the law is what it is is so that other people see and fear. They fear the consequences of their actions so that their sin's constrained. So it kind of goes back to what is the purpose for doing the punishment? The purpose for doing the punishment is to put the evil out of society by causing not just the person who committed murder to be put to death, but also the other people to look and go, I don't want to do that so that they constrain their own behavior because they don't want to stand there and have everybody throw stones at them. It looks painful. Right. We've been going through Exodus, and we can put a link to the sermon audio to, I mean, you can come and listen where we've been walking through the book of Exodus and walking through sections of this law. So if our thesis is kind of abolish all prisons, there is an important distinction to make, which is one that, you know, is, is in our uh, legal system and in it's in our legal system, which is the difference between jail and prison, which is uh, jail is where you're kept before trial when you're accused of a crime and you're deemed not able to be released. You're put in jail. And then once you're convicted of a crime, you're put in prisons. And those are typically different buildings, different, different system. Um, and so, you know, you don't see in scripture prisons. 
in God's law. You see them in, in, uh, in uh, unjust legal systems. But you do see uh, at least the idea of putting people in jail. So if we look at Numbers 15, 32 through 34. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. And I mean, that it's really clear when you look at this example, what's what the point of this is, is the detainment is not the punishment. The detainment is intended to be relatively short from the time at which the person was accused of the crime until we can figure out what the judgment for the crime is. But the detainment's not the judgment, which is what prisons are. So if you want to keep an idea of detainment, hey, we're perfectly comfortable with this. If you if somebody's accused of murder, yes, okay, it would be a good idea to lock them up until they get their trial, until they get their fair hearing. And, you know, when we look at even the American history, right, when somebody was convicted of of the crime of murder, it wasn't unusual to put somebody to death in three days. It wasn't like 40 years from now. So the detention was very much up to the trial. And then afterwards, you dealt with the punishment. And a lot of times the punishment wasn't prison. I mean, you know, you look at the stock, the stocks that they would put people in and the other things that they would do so that the society looked at the person and mocked the person. And in a lot of ways, those weren't biblical, but they're better than the prison system. They're making it public. They're making it obvious. They're making it, they're dealing with foolishness. And when they gave those three days before their execution, those three days were often so that a pastor could come and talk with them and say, repent, because this is your last chance. Right. And there isn't going to be a bunch of appeals. You're going to die in three days. So it's time for you to to make make your peace with God. One of the other big differences between jail and prison is that, at least in any just society, when you're dealing with when you've been accused of a crime, you're dealing with someone who is presumed to be even innocent to a certain extent. And so you're you're weighing their freedom versus the necessity to constrain them over like preponderance of evidence and likelihood that they might flee and other things like that, which is a very different thing than depriving someone of all their rights and saying you can do whatever you want to them is this is a person who still has rights in society. I mean, there's a recognition of those rights and you're having to balance those things, which is a very different position than someone who's in prison. Which also is, I mean, our system is very broken there too, because I think, you know, people that I have talked to, they prefer jail or prefer prison over jail, which isn't how it should be. The people in jail are considered to be presumed innocent and that they're being held, but yet they get treated worse frequently. Right. And so we've turned that upside down too. The reality they have is people longer term in jail than they should be in jail, and the jail's not right, really Sometimes made. they're in jail for two or three years. Right. You know, and, and that's just not— Jail's I mean, not designed—it it doesn't have the facilities or even the—I mean, so it, it has even less provision for that, right? I mean— Right, and it's, it's more because there is churn, because people get out on bail and stuff, they end up locking things down harder than they do at prison because they know in prison these people are going to be there for six months or a year or 10 years or 30 years. And so they're treating them different because they have an expectation of it being longer term. For the people that are in jail for two years, they're going to have a lot of people that come in and get bailed out a couple of days later. And so the guards are locking everybody down harder because they're having to deal with that, with that turnover. When we think about punishment, you know, there's also, you know, what, what other forms of punishment does Scripture prescribe? I think that one of the closest thing, or the closest thing that you see as punishment in Scripture 
uh, prescribe that this the closest to prison is the cities of refuge. So you have the situation where someone has been murdered and the murderer is supposed to flee to the city of refuge. And then there's the question of whether this was an intentional murder, in which case the person's put to death, or whether it's an accident. And so uh, if there's an accident, you do have something that is somewhat like prison. So numbers 35, 24 through 28. Then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. And the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge, where he had fled. And he shall remain there until the death of the high priest, who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge, where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, because he should have remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So a couple differences between the cities of refuge and prison. One is the, the city of, ref, of refuge are for innocent people, or who, who at least people who they could not prove that they intentionally murdered the person. And so it's, it's not for guilty people. Second, you have a whole city to be in. These were cities that were set apart by God for this purpose. And it wasn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a concrete building. It was a city with a lot of other people in it. In some cases, I think there was even the city where the Levites lived. So, so you had a lot more freedom to be, to be in this city. And I would say that the time that we look in history and see the closest to a similar thing or where it, where it works the same way would be Australia, where you're shipping the prisoners from England to Australia and they were put out of the society. They were put out of the English society. But they ended up making a society where they were. And it ended up that they still had to learn how to feed themselves. They still had to learn how to do farms. They raised sheep. They, they became productive people. And, I mean, it happened a little bit in the United States or in the colonies. But, but it happened you know, widespread in Australia. And this worked a lot better than our prison system works. I mean, it's and they were forced. They weren't allowed to return. If they returned, they'd be put to death. I mean, so they were kind of modeling this. And we see even with the problems there, and there was no death of the high priest and all those things, we actually see that it does work better than the prison system. Not that Australia is a model example, but it's, uh, you know, by comparison, which right. one would work better? <laughs> right. Would you rather live in Australia or a prison? <laughs> right. And, and you look at Australia, and Australia is... Not, I mean, they made a country and it was mostly founded by prisoners. And it is important to note that the cities of refuge are ceremonial law. You know, they're cities divinely established by God. Here's the exact cities. It's based on the high priest. It's pointing to Christ. But doesn't mean that we can't pull any moral principles out of that, that law. And it is interesting that you go into other cultures. I remember the culture in Hawaii without, without having a Christian witness. They still had the idea of a city of refuge where there was beaches that were refuge beaches that they could flee to and that they could live there. And so this idea, you know, and obviously there's, there's things that trace back to some idea of the gospel at some point in time. And some of these things, I mean, they work and societies kept them because they work. And we haven't ever experienced it, so we just assume they won't work. And so, yeah, we shouldn't do it the same as the Bible did it because that is ceremonial law. We're not going to wait for the death of a high priest. But that doesn't mean that there aren't real principles there that work a lot better than what man chooses to do. There are people who who have you know who will, who will agree with us potentially on different things, and they'll also say, unless we just completely switch over to this overnight, it's not going to work. And the truth is, is that's that's not possible either. 
I mean, and, and there can be shifts that happen quicker than you would think. But at the same time, I mean, things take time. And it does take work to move in a direction. And society changes over time. And the answer is, is do we want God's ways? Do we actually have a desire to do what God has said? And do we have faith? And you know, does it, do you believe that God actually can tell the church how to deal with sin? That the church actually has and answers society, to this? And society, not just the church. And, right, and that the church can do this, and that the church can then speak to the culture and actually change the culture. Because if you don't believe that, like you said, there's a problem with the Great Commission. You're not... You're not dealing with the commandment that God has given the church. And there's easy, there's easy small ways that you can start to put this into effect. I mean, there are people who want to be put to death because they realize their crimes are so heinous, but our system does not allow them to be put to death. So put the people to death who want to be put to death because of the crimes they've done. You can give people, start giving people the option to have physical punishment. We say it's so cruel. Is it really that cruel if they're choosing it? You know, start to make people pay restitution for the crimes. Um, you know, there's, there's easy ways that without tearing the whole system down, you can start to implement God's law. And, you know, we can have faith that if the more we implement God's law, the more good results we'll see. Right. And, you know, it's, we use the term of sanctification related to a Christian. But the Bible uses it more broadly, right? If you're, if the you have a believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse, then their children will be sanctified, is what it says in Second Corinthians seven. Excuse me, First Corinthians. No, first, first, first Corinthians. Corinthians it's what it says in First Corinthians seven is that. And so when we, you think of sanctification, you can think of sanctification like an individual, and we all know what that looks like, right? At least any Christian does. It's not like all of a sudden you were saved and then the next day you're doing everything the way God said to do it. It's here a little, there a little. Sometimes you make a big jump. Sometimes you make a small jump. And we shouldn't think a society, I mean, churches get sanctified the same way. And we shouldn't think a society wouldn't be sanctified that way too. Because that is how God works. And that how has God, how the salt and the light of the church affects society. is not just all of a sudden, wham, it's completely different. But it sanctifies over time. And so we need to take small steps because they build up and they make a big difference. Just as right now we're taking steps that are headed in a very different, very different direction than obedience to Scripture. We keep coming up with new ideas, new ways to fix problems that we created by the problems that we created. That we had. And it's just this spiraling right. out. And what we need to do is just to say, let's start taking steps. And like you said, Joshua, the person who goes, you know, I caused this person to lose an eye. Would I rather have lose an eye or would I rather spend the next 50 years in prison? I think a lot of people would say I'd rather lose an eye. Right. So the, the idea that we're really pushing here is go back and look at those laws and say, okay, this is, the, this is what God said to do for that people at that time. We're not that people. We're not that time. But this was God speaking. And when God speaks, you should be listening. And so if God told somebody that this was a good thing, then what could we take from that and say, hey, this is how we can model a society that tries to achieve the sorts of civil order that that was trying to achieve? And the right answer is not, let's make a bunch of concrete iron boxes. That's just not an application that you can get anywhere from God's law. And I mean, I think it's really important when we think of God's law as well, probably what the most common punishment was. I mean, it may have been for theft and because, you know, thievery happens a lot. But one of the most common one has to be described in Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, then the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, 
then the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this, and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. I mean, first thing that I want to say there is when you put a person in a cage like an animal, you're violating this law because you're not supposed to humiliate people. And that is what we do. So we need to understand that as a people, this is what we as a culture do. But when you think about it, right, think about how quickly things get settled. Things that now could take a while to settle, could take a long time. You know, there's misdemeanors that people are in prison for and all this other stuff, and they take years to to adjudicate. Think about how simple it is. You go, that's worthy of three stripes on the back. You give them the three stripes, and it's done. And you've solved the problem. It's not comfortable, but it actually does work to drive the foolishness out of their heart, and not just out of their heart, but the heart of society because you do this publicly. And all of a sudden... If this was a common punishment in the United States, there would be a lot less crime. And we could actually start punishing people less. And when you look about balancing budgets, think about the enormous amount of money that we spend on our prison system. I mean, it's enormous. And look at how much you'd save just by having a cane, and you cane the person. You know, I remember there was some time ago that somebody did vandalism in Singapore. And they got caned three or four times or five times. I forget what it was. The U.S. State Department made an appeal, and they reduced it, I think, from five to three or something like that. Right. And afterwards, what he said is, well, I will never go to Singapore again, ever. And Singapore's <laughs> perfectly happy with that. <laughs> exactly. Right. I don't think either. But the point is, he didn't go. You know, there's a lot of people who go to prison that walk out, and they'll do the same thing. But actually, a caning actually works. And I mean, and there's this part of it where it's like I said, you know, I was saying like with children, it works when it's done earlier. It works when it's done for like, because you don't cane somebody for murder. You don't, you, you don't, you, you wouldn't do this for someone who kidnaps a child. You wouldn't do this. You know what I mean? That, that there, you wouldn't do this for someone who, who, who kidnaps, who, you know, steals a woman and rapes her. That's not something that you would do this for. You do this for some. I mean, this could, these are for these are for disputes between men, and there's a huge number of things that fall into that category. But you think about where those happens and people happen in people's lives. It's not something that that if this is dealt with, it's not something that's entrenched. It's not something that they've done twenty times. It should be after the first time this happens. Oh wow! And like you said, I'm never going to do that again. It was and it, and it is. It's embarrassing, but it's not humiliating. I mean, and, and, that's, and we and may that's even really, turn around and go, that's humiliating, but we're wrong because God said it's not. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. It's just in, and when you think about it, so what happens a lot of times is man will like, let's use the example of a man beating his wife. So a man physically abuses his wife in our system. What happens over and over again is the police show up, they arrest the guy maybe. And then the next day the wife goes, I don't really want to press charges and they drop it. And then the next week he beats his wife again. And this goes on and escalates until he kills her. Sometimes it doesn't escalate, but it always escalates, maybe not to the point of death, maybe to the point of other injuries, but not to the point of death frequently, but sometimes it does. And then at some point in time in that system, it will be bad enough that the, the state will step in, maybe when she dies, maybe when she has permanent injury, or maybe when he just really beat her for the 30th time and they're tired of it. 
consider God's ways instead. That first time that he beats his wife, the judges go, you're a fool. And they hit him with a rod five times, say. More times than he hit his wife. <laughs> or even equal. Right. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Right. You punch your wife five times, you get hit with a rod five times. And is he going to go do it again? No. And you stop the escalation. Our system, because because even the police and the judges, and right the first time you get arrested, most people get a suspended sentence, even for some pretty serious crimes. Because they get a suspended sentence, and we can talk about plea bargains some other time, but they get a suspended sentence, and they don't really get anything other than, I could have been thrown in prison. Right. And the hassle of having to deal with it and the expense. But think about that, and then they don't have nearly the disincentive because everybody's going, it's really terrible to throw somebody in a cage and treat them like an animal, even if they don't verbalize that. In this way, you will actually do the enforcement because in a lot of cases, in the vast majority of cases, in our system, the enforcement isn't done until it's happened multiple times. And most of the times, the person who beats his wife would have done something before he beat his wife that also would have got him there. Very you potentially. Know what I, mean? I mean, But even worse case, right, if right. it was the first time he punched his wife and his wife goes to the magistrate and the wife doesn't have to go, I want to divorce my husband. I, I, she doesn't have to go, I need to figure out how to provide for myself. She doesn't need to go, I need to figure out how to provide for all my children. She takes him to the civil magistrate. The civil magistrate tries him, hits him with a rod twice and says, if you come back, you're getting more. And then he can go back home, continue to be a husband to his wife, continue to raise his children. Totally different result. Totally different because his sin would actually be constrained as opposed to the wife that's going, how will I provide for this household? How will I provide? How will I deal with my three children that I have? I can't right. deal with them without a father and doesn't want anything to happen to him because the punishment doesn't fit what's righteous. And in that case, what we do is we think about the man as an abuser. Right. And that's how he gets defined as opposed to saying, well, he did commit an act of abuse and he had to pay a penalty for it. It's an open question whether or not he's going to be an abuser again. If he's a real idiot, he will be. But, <laughs> but if it hurts enough, it's but, amazing how it will change. But exactly. But we're not just immediately going to that idea because we're treating him like a man who could actually respond and repent right. as opposed to an animal. Oh, well, that's just his nature. And, you know, dog's going to return to its vomit. In 2 Corinthians 7, right, it talks about that there's godly repentance and there's worldly repentance. Well, worldly repentance is still incredibly useful. Right. And so if all you do by beating him is getting worldly repentance out of him, that means he's not going to do it anymore. <laughs> Good enough. That, exactly, that helps society. That's exactly what we were talking about earlier when we were saying that God has made the world so that saved and unsaved men can live in the world. And and there's this there's just this denial of the church acts like, I don't know. I don't know how that happens. I don't know what that means. I don't, you know what I mean? And and. Mm -hmm. That, that's really the issue that you're talking about. You're sinners. You figure out how to deal with yourself. We're the church. We're separate. We don't need to. Right. We don't, we don't have any wisdom to contribute. And it's not that God's law eliminates crime. It's not that it always eliminates crimes escalating. It's not that it makes everything nice and pretty. It's that you see the reality of what's happening. You see when there's sin, it's punished. Uh, it, it, it's, yeah, you, you it, God's ways are better. It's salt and light, right? Light. When the church is being salt and light, the light shines, and that reduces the, the corruption. It doesn't mean things don't rot. It means they rot slower. The salt means it rots slower. It doesn't mean that you get rid of all your problems, 
but it means that they're controlled so that it still stays useful. So as we consider the prison system and consider what our society wants to do, which is put people away from us so that we don't see it and we ignore the problem and we don't actually have to deal with it. As Christians, we should recognize how frequently we do that in the church because the state got that idea from someplace. So we need to be dealing with sin in our churches if we expect to deal properly with sin in the society. And if we want to have a society that has fewer crimes in it, that has fewer violence, has less violence, if we want to reduce the problems that we see growing around us, it starts with us being faithful in churches so that we are salt and light. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.